Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 35, A Ride in Orion. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So on this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on right here at NASA. So today we're talking about NASA's deep space human space capsule, Orion. Orion will take us outside low Earth orbit, well beyond the International Space Station. To prepare Orion to take us to deep space, we have folks here at the Johnson Space Center working on development and testing of every stage of flight, one of whom is Jeff Fox, chief engineer of the Rapid Prototype Lab at the Johnson Space Center, here to tell us all about Orion and how the Rapid Prototype Lab plays a role in its success. We talked about some of the testing that's been happening for Orion, and Jeff brings us the actual audio from those tests to experience during this episode. It really felt like we were taking a ride on Orion. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Jeff Fox. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light for the red. Here she goes. We have a podcast. Thanks a lot to, for coming today to talk about kind of Orion, and you are the chief engineer of the Rapid Prototype Lab, is that right? That's correct, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk about talk talk to you today. Fantastic. All right, well, we're going to kind of get into the Rapid Prototype Lab, and I'm really excited for this episode because um, the whole idea of that lab is you can kind of sit down and sort of experience uh, some of these test flights that we've done, and you have audio recordings of that that you've brought in, and we'll kind of go through those, and you, the listener, can actually sit back and kind of kind of experience what it's like inside these test runs inside of Orion. So, and Jeff's going to kind of guide us through that experience. <laughs> yes, it's very exciting. We're going to take you through a launch, an entry, and a pad abort, uh, like a, when you're trying to get away from uh, the rocket. If it's not performing well on a launch and a little escape rocket on top, it, I think you'll really find it interesting. Yeah, this is going to be cool. So let's kind of kind of set the scene a little bit. We've done a couple episodes on Orion itself, but if we can just start with the basics of what is this vehicle that we're going to be on for because all of these tests are are different parts of orion but this vehicle orion what is it, it well obviously it's a capsule people have seen it you know it, it has a similar shape to apollo uh, only it has four people in it it's wider at the bottom so whereas apollo uh, was on the order of 3.9 meters uh, orion is five meters so it's quite a bit bigger in the interior uh, it also has a heat shield that's unique, and it's the largest one that we've, we've tested to date. So that's a really unique factor, and it has a lot of uh, newer electronics in it. You don't have as many physical switches. Everything is done under a glass and computer with displays, much like everybody's used to seeing on their laptop and video games. Um, uh, but um, uh, So all those technologies and all that's been learned over the, the many years since Apollo are all uh, try to take advantage of the ones that, that help us and use the ones that are reliable and cost-effective and that, um, that will get the job done. Exactly. Okay, cool. So the, you got this capsule, and this capsule is going to bring us further than we've gone before, right? And then we're going to be focusing NASA. The, the objective is to go and explore the solar system and sort of establish this, this space in the low-Earth orbit for commercial industries to kind of take over. Is that right? The goal is to have the commercial crew vehicles, you know, uh, take up the space in low Earth orbit where, you know, shuttle and station have been the ones primarily, you know, yeah. in, in Soyuz other visiting vehicles. But yeah. we're trying to move beyond that. 
So exactly. uh, it takes a bigger rocket. It takes uh, d different um, it's different challenges to do that because whether we go to the moon, uh, go to a gateway that's somewhere between the moon and the Earth, uh, go to Mars, you're going to have to have a vehicle that can get you out of Earth orbit. You're going to have to have a vehicle, Orion, the capsule, that can get you safely back into the atmosphere and back to Earth after these missions. These missions can be longer. They can be days or weeks. It could be months or years. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't want anybody to think that you're going to live in that little tiny capsule for years and years. <laughs> well, obviously you're not. For the upcoming missions, it's maybe a week or two. You know, you're dealing with days or weeks. That may be okay. But if you're going to Mars or you're going somewhere for a long time, you're going to have to dock to a larger habitable volume. You know, something, a bigger canister, if you will, where you can live and, and, and do other things. Uh, and then you'll transition back into Orion as your vehicle to get you back to Earth when the time is right. Exactly. And we're taking these steps to get to that point, just uh, one step at a time, kind of developing this vehicle. We're building right now uh, the, the vehicle for EM-1, I believe, but we've actually done a test in the past, EFT-1, right? That was our first test flight of Orion. That's correct. EFT-1 stands for Exploration Flight Test 1. Uh, it was actually launched on a different booster than we're going to use for our NASA missions. It was on a Delta IV Heavy, mm -hmm. but that rocket got us to the speed and altitude conditions around the Earth that we needed because what we really wanted to do was test the heat shield structure, recovery systems, those types of things. And, you know, and we did that. The vehicle actually went uh, up to 20,000 miles an hour, which is the fastest any vehicle, man-type vehicle has been since Apollo. And we're actually going to have to go faster than that to escape Earth orbit when we go to the moon. That's right. Because the Delta IV brought us not necessarily around the moon, but brought us kind of in the lunar vicinity and then coming back super fast, right? It was a highly elliptical orbit. So okay. it was around the Earth, but way away from the Earth. Yes. A, a very high apogee. Yeah. So, you know, you were coming in, accelerating the Earth and building up those tremendous speeds that are... Uh, so you can test the heat shield, the structure. Yeah, and that was the that was the mission profile. You got the uh, you got the heat shield. You had um, you know these incredible speeds to get to the temperatures in order to test the heat shield. Uh, but then there was the whole sequence of deploying parachutes too, right? That's right. You yeah. know, you're only as good as uh, all the components that work together. And yeah. if you can't get the shoots out, you're it's not going to be a good mission. <laughs> so. Exactly. And you actually got to see that firsthand, didn't you? Yeah, I was very fortunate. We actually, what's really unique is uh, you, you want to be close as you can to this vehicle anytime we're doing uh, tests like this, whether it's parachutes out in the desert in Yuma, Arizona, mm -hmm. or the spacecraft coming back from space with EFT-1. And nominally, you know, the error predictions of all the debris that come off when these parachutes come out are very large. Mm -hmm. And so you can't approach in a helicopter or thing too close because it's dangerous. Something could hit the road or hit the helicopter. Uh, but you want to get close because you want to get good stills and video because it's good for the engineering and, and documentation and great for public affairs to share the imagery. Uh, but you have to have a way to do that. So uh, a system was developed that allowed us to look at the error predictions of these things coming off. And I was fortunate enough to be deployed aboard ship out at sea for EFT-1. And we flew in the Navy Seahawk uh, out at altitude, about 6,000 feet out over the Pacific Ocean. And we were using the flying with the navy and using their cameras to image the image the vehicle it was coming back in uh, from space i think we picked it up somewhere around 70,000 feet it looked like a star in infrared then we switched it to the live video we kept the video trained on it uh, we were able to make 
all the the timing calls for our photographers and videographers on board the space uh, on board the helicopter and follow the vehicle basically down to splashdown. So it was a you know an honor, a very exciting time. That's incredible. So were were you were you piloting or were you taking the images or monitoring the instruments? Well, it's a whole team. The Navy okay. was doing the piloting, and then we had a uh, mostly uh, NASA uh, combined NASA contractor team in the back of the aircraft, hmm. either taking pictures, uh, keeping track of the timeline, and letting people know what's happening or like myself, uh, operating a tool, we call it the, de the debris tool, so we make sure we're staying in the uh, places that are safe to fly and there's no hazardous debris in those areas. Yeah, and then kind of tracking it. Did you actually see it come down or were I you... I was, usually your real focus is a great question. Yeah. You're, you're so intense, you don't want to screw up, right? Exactly. You know, everybody's looking and you, you put all this into it, you don't, you don't want to miss the money shot, right? So <laughs> you're looking at your screen, but you realize history's going on. I did get a quick peek out uh, out the right side window and I could see the, the vehicle coming down and I could see it, uh, you know, splash down. But, you, you know, your main thing is the safety of the helicopter and everybody on board and, and allow us to collect that imagery so that the engineers and others can use it later. Awesome. All right, so that was our first step on the on this future vehicle that's going to take us deeper into space. But really, your your job title is the chief engineer of the Rapid Prototype Lab, right? So what's what's that? What's the Rapid Prototype Lab? So it's kind of a generic sounding name. It's a name that stuck. The lab's actually been around for over ten years. Mm -hmm. uh, it belongs to the crew office, CB at NASA. Um, kind of the whole purpose of it is you have a lot of knowledge with, you know, test pilots and all the seasoned crew that have been aboard all these spacecrafts and have a lot of knowledge of how to operate a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And that knowledge can be, uh, we want to leverage it. And what our lab does is we are actually in the critical path to building the displays that will be used to control the Orion vehicle in all flight phases, the launch phases, the orbit phases, the entry phases. So there's roughly 70 of these displays that we, in software displays that the crew will use to interact with. Uh, well, the crew is very um, involved in the design of what the content of those displays are. And so uh, our lab is charged with building these prototypes of these displays, describing how they work, bringing the crew into simulators that we've built to, um, to test out these displays, find if there's issues with them that we need to correct, uh, and this is not something new. We're doing it for Orion, but we've also did it uh, in shuttle and for other vehicles like the X-38 uh, that we've tested in the past. So it's really uh, a real resource, you know, to ensure we've got a, a spacecraft that the crew can interface with, because that's your primary control is through those displays. So that's the, and that's it. Is to, I guess, rapid prototype means you kind of use the resources you have to kind of put this together. All right, what can we create to simulate this this pilot, this experience, and uh, this uh, uh, cockpit? I guess. And yes. Then, yeah. yeah. And I'm saying, and, and again, you know, getting back to the name, rapid prototyping lab, it's really of the crew interfaces. I see. So you know, it has kind of a generic name, but that's what we're really doing in this case of the displays. So. Uh, that's really your whole interface to this vehicle. You know, without that, you you know, you're kind of along for the ride, but you may need manual intervention. You wanna, you want to follow what the automation's doing at times. You, there's a whole you know host of reasons that you want to see data and know what's going on with your vehicle. You may go on missions that are uh, a long time delay before somebody can talk to you. Hmm. Well, I may have to go in there and do things, and I can't wait for the ground. So we need to try to think of those things, and we work with teams of the crew and human engineering and flight operations, uh, mission control, flight controllers. So together we all come up with these concepts and test them with the crew 
and uh, and you know take advantage of all that experience, decades, centuries of experience when you add it all up. There you go. Yeah, you're right. This is a place where all of this knowledge comes together to create this beautiful thing that eventually is going to go in a real vehicle and be t- and that the procedures are going to be implemented in real spaceflight. That's the most exciting part for us, knowing that for, you know, we build these vehicles maybe what once every 30 years, you know, yeah. this has been my short experience and they can last that long, you know, or longer and just, you know, to be able to be part of even a couple of displays are actually flying the crew is using and you've tested it. It's really exciting. Oh, yeah. And so this is the reason that I really wanted you to come in is, you know, you gave us a, a tour of, of this the rapid prototype lab and we actually got to sit back and you played this experience of, of Exploration Flight Test 1, of EFT-1. And it, it truly felt like I was there. It felt like I was inside. So what, what, what kind of, what are you using this test for, this, this footage, the, the lab for specifically for EFT-1? A couple things. One, it certainly is one of the most popular tours around. <laughs> we, we had a lot of crest requests. I think we've had everybody from the center director to uh, the head of the administrator of NASA on down. You know, oh, to wow. you know different authors and uh, you know uh, dignitaries and, and all kinds of, of personnel because it's fun. Yeah. But it's not just a simulation. The difference with this is, I'd say it's more like a recreation because we've actually taken the real audio and video off of the EFP-1 test flight like you talked about. Yeah. And that, and the way we did that was, although there was no crew on it for that, that first launch, we gathered all the data we mentioned about, we came back 20,000 miles an hour, tested the heat shield, but there was a microphone inside of the crew cabin and it's located near where the crew's head is. So we had the idea, if we got this audio, we could certainly replicate the audio during the different mission phases, the launch, the entry, those kind of things. Yeah. And then we said, well, you know what? Not only do we have the audio, we've got the video because there's different cameras pointed out the different windows. And okay, well, I bet we can sync up the audio and the video together. Yeah. And we had an idea. We were going to build a simulator that you can lay on your back. And uh, in fact, the particular simulator we're repurposing was flowing on the zero gravity plane that does a big parabolic arc in the sky because mm-hmm. we were testing things early on in the program. And we... We repurpose uh, that and pump the audio and the video into that. You lay out your back, you look out the windows. Uh, we actually are proud of the fact that we did it very cost effectively too because we repurposed older seats that uh, Orion wasn't using. We went to Home Depot and bought a screen and, 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 and created a screen over the windows that you lay down and look out, the regular Orion windows, which are in our mock-up. Cool. We used a projector that was not being used for anything else. And, you know, now we have a way to recreate the launch, the landing, and the pad abort, which we'll probably talk about in a little bit. Yeah. Um, not only can we recreate it, and it's the fun part, but we've actually used that audio video and tied it in with data from the real mission and put the crew in there and let them actually practice manually deploying parachutes, for example, or working malfunctions. Oh, yeah. And not only that, that simulator has been tied to a, a very what we call a mini mission control room with flight controllers, a, a handful of them, where we can flow that same simulation data, talk on the on the different intercom system, and it's just like a real flight, a simulation where you have the mission control involved with the crew using this audio, video, and different data, and you get a feel for what it's like to really be on the vehicle. We can really learn how good are these displays working and what works well, and you know, because it's a brand new system. We need to test these things. 
All right. So, I mean, the fact that you had video and audio on EFT1, were you advocating for that or was that part of the mission design? Part of the mission design. I we see. just said, hey, it's there. Let's see what we can do with it. You yes. Know what I mean, Let, let's, uh, you know, again, hence the name Rapid Prototyping Lab, the yeah. RPL. You know, it doesn't always cost a lot to try these these different concepts. So we're, we're fortunate that we're able to prototype these things and we need to do things, you know, sometimes it doesn't have to be a perfect production model to test things and find out if you're on the right path. So yeah. we could build something like this um, recreation, you know, of, uh, of EFT1. Fantastic. Well, I'm ready to ride on it. You want to you want to take us through? I'm ready. I never get tired of it. I've done it over 100 times and never never tire of it. Oh, man. I'm very excited. Okay. All right. So the first one, I think, why don't, why don't we start with launch? Because I feel like that's uh, that's like the first thing you think about when the, the first part of um, uh, first part of EFT1. So I wanted to take us through the first three minutes, and there's a good reason for that. What's happening on the first three minutes of launch? Well, of course, you've, you're lighting the engines for the first time. You're yeah. close to the ground. You know, that's what if you were standing in the audience, you'd see the big flame. And then a number of seconds later, you'd hear the audio, the, the sound coming in. Well, interesting thing from the perspective of the crew, you're getting the microphone on board. So it's pretty loud. You're, you're going to really hear that when you first launch. And what, the other thing about that is the sound is right there. It's all going into the ground. It's reflecting back up into you and the structure. And so it's pretty rowdy for those first several seconds. And then as you move away from the ground and that structure, it quiets down a little bit because you're not getting the, the, the sound of the rock and the reflected sound and all that. Yeah. And as you're moving up through the atmosphere, it, get, it quiets down a little bit more, but then you start to pick up more speed. And if some of you even remember back in shuttle, you remember you know those calls like max Q and things like that, maximum dynamic pressure. Fancy words for the vehicles moving very quickly, through uh, dense air and uh, the, the aerial forces on the vehicle can, you know, you can transmit some more sound in the vehicle and you'll kind of hear the sound rise a little bit as you're, you're going, you know, in those regimes. And then as you go faster, but you get through much thinner air, uh, the sound will taper off and then eventually it'll be fairly quiet as you're ascending through the atmosphere. Exactly. And then eventually it's going to get to a point where you're not going to really hear anything until things start clicking and deploying and stuff, it's, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's very quiet. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's much quieter. I mean, you're going to notice something's going on. Obviously, you're going to feel a rumble. That's the other nice thing about our simulators. We actually play back some vibration, you know, from those recorded oh. microphones into the seat. So not only are you looking at the audio and the video, you're feeling the seat move. So yes. you really feel like it's a, I guess, 3D experience, if you will. <laughs> so, you know, you got the, the motion, typical like home theater type of seat shakers. All right. Will. All right. Well, if you have a home theater seat shaker, this is the time to plug it in for this podcast because we're going to take you through the first three minutes of launch. And like you said, it's going to it's going to sort of uh, it'll be loud at first and then it'll sort of uh, quiet down after you get to maximum dynamic pressure. And then it starts getting louder again and then as you kind of escape the atmosphere the molecules you're not pushing up against anything and it gets quieter and quieter and quieter until nothing that's right awesome all right here we go take us through the ride
Okay, awesome. Very, that was pretty cool. All right, so that was one. That was the first part, and um, so that's that's the launch. Then through the mission profile, it goes what what it goes around the Earth, and then that's when it does the large apogee. Is that is that kind of what happens on EFT one? Yeah. Well, the bottom line is it's a couple orbit couple mission, orbit. but you're getting. Your, the whole objective is to get a very high apogee and create the entry speeds that are needed yeah. to test the heat shield properly. Yes. Uh, you know, t it's one thing to test it in low Earth orbit at 17,500 miles an hour, but you have to do uh, generate a different type of tra trajectory and um, uh, performance profile in order to generate a 20,000 mile an hour um, entry yeah. to create the heat, the 4,000 degree roughly heating that you're going to get on the heat shield to find out if that and the structure will survive all that so exactly exactly and you know 2500 miles an hour is not just small like boost you know that's 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 significant so or 20,000 miles an hour right, right i mean 2500 extra miles oh 2500 yeah. extra miles an hour. that's yeah. correct yeah that's yeah. exactly right that's yeah so generating that is is no small feat so that's where this next part comes in and that's the entry sequence right right so we've kind of split this up into a couple different segments first is um you're you're starting to enter the atmosphere, and there's that's when you're, the heat is starting to build up, and you're getting this plasma. What's happening there? Well, you're basically now. You know, if you think about the ascent, you were you were speeding through the atmosphere, it was getting quieter. Now you're you're at your maximum speed of twenty thousand miles an hour. Yeah. You're as you as you come into what we call entry interface, and we probably four hundred thousand feet, eighty miles up, roughly. Uh, you start running into enough air fast enough that you're creating this heat and this plasma around the vehicle, around the heat shield, and you're generating these maximum temperatures in the 4,000 degree range you know, in order to test your heat shield. And as you're riding in there, you can actually see the plasma going by the, 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 the window. You hear the jets fire. You see the plasma interrupted and moving outside the window. It's, it's quite a sight. Uh, so you're, he you're hearing it. You're seeing it, you know. You're feeling the jet fires, uh, the little attitude control jets, to, you know, either stabilize you or change your attitude. So it's it's, it's quite a ride. All right. Okay. So I I think that that video has to be available somewhere, like on YouTube or NASA.gov or something like that. I I know there there are vehicles I, I, or vehicles there are videos I've yeah. seen post uh, the flight, uh, which is back in December 14. Yes. Some of them, I think they are the same views, but they may be either set to NASA narration okay. or music. Oh, okay. What we did is we stripped all that out because we just wanted it like it would have been had the crew been in it. Yes. Here's the crew experience. So it's just audio from the perspective of the crew inside the cabin and video out the window. Cool. All right, so let's go into that. Let's play the... It's about 30, maybe 30 seconds, maybe a minute. You're going to hear the plasma start to build, and it's kind of like a white noise almost yeah. kind of noise. And then you'll hear these thumps, and that's the jet firings as it's changing attitude. Right, exactly.
All right, awesome. All right, so the next part is there's this, um, it's, there's kind of a gap up until the next loud sound you hear is the shoots, when the shoots start coming out, right? Yeah, actually the first thing happens, there's a cover protecting all that, the chute compartment on the top. Yeah. You wouldn't want that just exposed to, to anything before it's, you're, you're ready for it to come out. So the first thing that's going to happen is that cover, the four-bay cover, the FBC will jettison. You'll hear a, a pyrotechnics fire and you'll hear that thing uh, come off. You'll see it actually go by out the window. So that's kind of interesting to see it fly off. Yeah. And that's followed very quickly by the drogue chutes. There's two drogue chutes. They're about 23 feet in diameter. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing there is you're trying to put those out to slow and ensure the vehicle's in a stable configuration because you don't want to put out your next set of parachutes until you've done that. And so, uh, you know, a certain short amount of time later, your main parachutes will come out. There's three of those. Each one of those is about 115 foot in diameter. Again, you'll hear another uh, loud uh, pyrotechnic sound because you have mortars that are firing that are uh, deploying these parachutes. Uh, the good thing about these parachutes is you got three, so any two of them, you can have a safe landing. That's a good thing. You got some redundancy. All right. That's awesome. Okay, so let's play that. Let's play the shoot deployment sequence. It's uh, about 30-ish seconds long, so let's go through there. Okay, awesome. So those main chutes are deploying. You got uh, now you're coasting on those for a couple minutes, right? Yeah, that's that's right. And then um, so now you're going down and you're splashing. And this the EFT one happened in the it splashed down in the Pacific Ocean. That's correct. Okay, so then now now that's the, this is the last part we're gonna play is the actual splashdown. So I think you start off by hearing a couple thumps, right? And those are the jets firing for orientation. Yeah, there's some jets firing uh, in that particular mission. We were trying to keep the the uh, basically the the spinal axis of the the astronaut, if you will, mm -hmm. from head to toe, pointed in the direction that we're moving, so that when you splash down, the loads that you take, the g forces that you take, kind of spread them out nice and evenly across your body. Ah. So you're kind of hearing maybe several of these jets fire to try to hold that position, and then you'll hear the splash down. And it's really great in the video. Fortunately, folks can't see it, but you <laughs> see the water come up over the windows. Oh, cool. And then you sit there for a, a few more seconds, and then you hear another pyrotechnic booming sound, and that's the risers that are connected to the parachutes cut on them away because you want to get yourself away from those. That's right. Yeah. yeah, you don't want them to be pulling you all over the place. That's right. Okay, cool. So that's only a couple seconds here, so we'll go through the jets firing and the splashdown all the way to cutting those risers.
All right, very cool. So there it is. There's your ride on Orion. It's uh, launching and then landing and that whole that whole sequence there. So the last part that I really wanted to um, experience was the paddleboard test that we mm -hmm. did. I think it was back in 2010, and that was uh, paddleboard one. It's uh, very quick, isn't it? Yeah, it's real quick. Actually, that was done out at White Sands, New Mexico. Uh, you know, just sitting on a capsule with the booster, uh, the abort rockets on top of it, uh, emulating uh, an escape from the launch pad. You know, if you were sitting out there and the crew was on this big massive rocket and there wasn't time to jump out and run down a slide wire and slide to safety, you might have to light that little rocket off and it would separate at the bottom of the capsule and pull the capsule away. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, the way we emulated that out at White Sands is we put, again, that capsule on a concrete pad had the escape rocket on top, and then fired that rocket. That's to right. Test it. And this, the whole idea of a paddleboard is this thing is supposed to be escaping from a failed vehicle. So it's everything happens so fast, and you're probably feeling a lot of G's, right? That's correct. Whether you're escaping on the launch pad or you're escaping when you're at altitude, you you've got a uh, that little rocket has a big task. Yeah. It has to accelerate your twenty thousand pound roughly capsule away from a giant, uh, most powerful rocket ever built that's behind you that may be chasing you. <laughs> and you may be pushing through a thick part of the atmosphere. So not only are you trying to push through the atmosphere, you're trying to get out of the way of maybe a rocket that's coming apart of the booster below you. So I've got to have a really uh, high accelerating little escape rocket to get me out of harm's way. So when this motor fires, it's only for a few seconds. And those Gs build up very quickly uh, but they're, they're, they spike real quickly and come down real quickly because, you know, if you were on those too long, you, you could you could you could injure yourself. Yeah, that's right. I mean, feeling that on your kind of spread out throughout your whole body, I can't even imagine what that feels like. Well, it's interesting you say that. I kind of segue into my my dad, Mike Fox. Actually, uh, back in the mid '60s, he was the lead subject in the centrifuge. And think of a centrifuge as something that swings around. And in this case, it was him and his. Uh, other Navy um, test subjects back in the mid-60s, and they uh, were riding several of the Apollo abort profiles, and those were in the 12 to 16 G range. In fact, my dad rode one up. He still holds a record at JSC at 16 Gs. Whoa. Um, and if you wanted to get an idea what that's like, you could go out to your garage and jack your car up, get in the center of it, and let it down in your chest. If you're 200 pounds and you multiply that by 16, that's 3,200 pounds. So Whoa. that's what it's like now. Obviously, no body can take that body or not somebody but your physical body can take that right for very long so the g comes on very quick we're talking fractions of a second or a little you know maybe a, a second but it's it's short but it's intense and you can cause bodily injury in fact uh interesting story uh, my dad was doing a high g run and the simulator that part went all uh, well but the simulator had to be slowed down or abrupt slowdown what that did is if you think about swinging around like on an amusement ride, your inner ear and how the fluid in your inner ear can get disturbed if you stop abruptly or move your head and you feel upset stomach or something. Yeah. Well, when they stopped the centrifuge and he got out, he didn't feel real well. And eventually, you know, they observed him. They said, well, you can go home. He had a little hazardous duty badge on for when you're riding the centrifuge because it obviously can be hazardous. Oh, okay. And he decided, well, uh, you know, they said you could go home. And so he got in his, his car and drove home. And, uh, you know, a few minutes into the drive, he's getting pulled over. You know, he sees police behind him. And he's like, well, geez, I don't know what's wrong. I haven't done anything. <laughs> so he pulled over. And the officer asked him to step out and say, 
you know, did you know you were weaving all over the road? I said, well, well, no, sir, I'm, I'm fine. You know, of course, he's thinking he's fine. Right. And the officer said, we want you to turn around and put your hands on the roof. And so he went to turn around, put his hands on his roof, and he fell backwards. <laughs> his whole inner ear was, had everything transposed 180 out to what he thought he was, the motion he was performing was like the opposite. And so then, the, you know, police immediately thought, well, you must be drunk. You have to be drunk. And, of course, he's trying to show them his badge and say, no, no, I'm part of the NASA <laughs> crew. I was doing this, and no, they weren't going to have anything of it. So they took him to the Baytown jail, and I'm not, you know, probably about a half an hour from the Johnson Space Center here. And, of course, it was in the evening, and he's trying to get him to, to understand what's going on. And so sometime <laughs> late in the evening, one of the the uh, desk sergeants or somebody came over and said, I'm going to take another look at this. And so he asked him some more questions. I think he looked at the badge, and he's like, well, maybe we've made a terrible mistake. <gasps> you know, maybe this you're telling us the truth. Yeah. Bottom line is they wind up saying, yes, you know, uh, we we checked it out. You're, you're good. And they, But the funny thing was is, uh, they actually took him out to his car, which was still on the side of the road, and let him get in it to go home. What? And he still has this condition that <laughs> maybe he's driving like a drunk, even though it's not his fault. Yeah. And so he gets in the car, somehow gets home about 3.30 in the morning. Uh, of course, mom is there. You know, we're world young at the time, so we don't remember, maybe six, seven years old. Yeah. He, uh, she says, well, where are you? Have you been out? Have you been out with the guys? What's been going on here? And he says, no, I was doing this high G centrifuge run and we had a, an, an issue and this and that and the police and here I am. <laughs> and so he was changing clothes, getting ready to go to bed and went to sit down in the bed and fell down, <laughs> fell backwards. And so immediately she's thinking, no, you, you must have been out. This is some wow. party or something. But he eventually talked to her and explained it and, you know, everything worked out. And then out. she took him right back she to jail. Back. Huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. So... <laughs> Well, thank goodness he made it back because we, we yeah. did see him again. Thankfully, absolutely. Wow. It's amazing how long that that affected him, though. How, how long that his equilibrium was so out of whack. That's all the way through the middle of the night. Yeah, you kind of, where you upset your gyros, you know, yeah. literally that those little hair follicles and that fluid in your inner ear can really be uh, disturbed and they don't necessarily just go... Uh, you don't just necessarily recover that immediately. Yeah. So this this, this pad abort test, this is going to, you know, you know, you're going to feel the G's, but it's going to do it in a way where the hum, the human body isn't going to be so out of whack, right? No, you're not going to stop yeah. abruptly like we're right. doing the centrifuge of that motion. You're, yeah. you're getting the G's from chest to back. You're laying down, looking straight up. They're onset very quickly. You know, the whole thrust of the motor is you know three to four seconds yeah and you're not at that max g for more than a, you know you know fractions of a second in that right. peak it does peak there and it isn't comfortable and uh but it, it does save your life so that that that's the purpose of it you Absolutely. know and if it can bring you back and you have a little bruising well then we did our job yes yes exactly so. and and just another point is you said you know you're, you're feeling this on your chest and it's being um kind of spread evenly throughout your body but in the motion directly kind of on your chest versus, you know, straight up, your spine couldn't handle that, right? If you were taking yeah. those loads, I mean, you'd have like a whole lot bigger problem. Oh, if it yeah. was coming from toward your head to your toe or your toes to your head, you'd yeah. have a lot of other complications. And so that's not a good orientation to put the body in. Definitely not. And that's why they're mm -hmm. oriented this way um, during launch. So, so for Padabort one, we're going to take you to that, uh, that simulation, that audio right now. It's very loud up front, right? So I would just be prepared for that. It's going to be real sudden, but then um, it's going to be real loud. And then about 30 seconds in, that's where everything happens. And it has to happen super quickly, right? Yes. Uh, so if you think about it, uh, there's, you know, think of two ways doing a, uh, an abort. Uh, a pad abort means you're sitting on the pad or you're, you're very close to the ground, right? Mm -hmm. 
So <clears throat> that's one way. Another way is you've got altitude. You're already in the boost phase of the main booster. Maybe you're at 10,000 feet. Maybe you're at 100,000 feet. So you have some altitude to work with to deploy parachutes and that type of thing. Yeah. Well, in this particular one you're going to experience, this pad abort, you were sitting on the ground. Remember out at White Sands, New Mexico, the capsule was on the ground, the escape rocket was on top. So you only have a few thousand feet to play with after the thrust of that uh, abort motor is finished. So as soon as that loud noise is over and tails off, you hear another uh, booming noise, and that's the jettison motor to pull the cover off of the vehicle. Because you have a cover over to protect it from all the smoke and fire of the main motor to, to get you to safety. That's right, because it's right above you. It's right, right? above you, but yeah. you can't get your parachutes out unless you get this cover off. Yeah. So the cover comes off, but because you don't have a lot of altitude, the next thing right away happens is the forward bay cover that we talked about before for the entry that hides the pair that covers the parachute compartment. It comes off, followed right away by the drogue chutes, followed right away by the main chutes. You don't have time. You don't have time to watch everything perfectly come out and be stable. You just have to get under the parachutes. That's right. So everything's happening super fast. So again, it's really loud up front. So just be prepared for that. And then 30 seconds in about that's where everything's going to deploy. All right, cool. So that's uh, that's pretty much like the, the some of the coolest parts about the uh, rapid prototype lab, right? Is you you got these simulators, and we just took you through launch, entry, and pad abort one, and you can actually sit in the rapid prototype lab and feel all of this kind of real time. You're not just doing the audio, but you're talking about the vibrations, the the visuals, all these things, all these things, these elements, so that the crew can actually learn what they're what they're like. That's right. It's a good familiarization tool. If you haven't done it, you can get in there and it, it'll kind of give you an idea. I think the thing that struck us was how many of those little attitude control jets fire and how much are, there is really happening there. Yeah. That's not something you sit around and just think about. You think of a launch, it's a dull roar, a roar and it goes down and you don't hear a lot of those things. But yeah. on the entry, it's a whole different thing and you're hearing the pyrotechnics fire and seeing the parachutes come out through the windows and totally different experience. So we use that tool along with uh, other simulators to help the crew get familiar with these flight phases or learn how to interface with the vehicle through the displays that we're building. So it's a great tool. Exactly. I'm imagining like an emergency situation too, because if you're, if you're taking someone through the rapid prototype lab and you know to listen for the thump, 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 you know, if something wasn't going right, you can actually, it's, it, you've lived it, you've experienced it, so you can actually report something. Hey, maybe something's not going th the way that I want, or maybe we need to, you know, think about uh, this emergency response scenario because this, I'm not hearing or experiencing it the way that I experienced it in the rapid prototype lab. That's exactly right. That's awesome. And I'm sure a lot of these lessons learned are going to be taken on future missions too. So where's where's Orion going next? So we're, the next flight is an unmanned flight, EM-1, you know, in a few years here. And, uh, you know, now we're, we've got, you know, missions that are being defined, you know, in the vicinity of the moon or around the moon. Mm -hmm. So that's the next stop, you know, followed a few years later by a crew 
uh, potentially doing that same type of flight profile. And I think as time goes on, we're going to get, you know, more clarification, you know, with uh, our schedule and budgets and direction from the president and Congress of, yeah. you know, where our next, you know, stops will be. And so we're excited for that. We're building the capability right now. We'll be ready and uh, to execute those missions. That's right. It's just amazing, you know, talking to you and then all of these other Orion experts, you kind of get the whole picture of everything that's going into this, right? There's there's so many different elements and so many different people working on all of these different things that help to make this mission successful. So it's kind of exciting that when you see this this thing launch, you know, it just looks like a launch to you, but then you think about all the work and all the people that work so hard and diligently to make this moment possible. It's kind of... It's kind of inspiring to, to see that thing on the launch pad, or it will be, you know, when it finally does. I'm very excited for it. Well, Jeff, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and taking us through the super cool audio experience. I really, truly felt like I was on Orion. That's the whole purpose. And that's really why I wanted to bring you in. It's just, I, I felt it, man. I really, I, it's it's a different experience and you're right. It's 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 kind of helps with the training and understanding what this vehicle is all about and learning, uh, bringing all these teams together so you can make it the best possible thing. So I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Jeff Fox, and he took us through a ride on Orion, and it really felt like it, right? I hope you actually turned up your uh, the podcast volume whenever you were listening to that stuff, because especially if you have like a theater or something, you can really feel it. We were doing, we were in the studio uh, editing this, and it really felt like we were on that launch. Everything was vibrating. It was it was kind of awesome. So I hope you did that. If not, you can go back and listen to it. Uh, but if you want to see more on Orion, you can go to our website. Uh, nasa.gov slash Orion. Actually, the Ascent Abort 2 capsule just arrived at the Johnson Space Center uh, not too long ago, and it's uh, being outfitted to start the next abort test mission, so it's kind of cool. Actually, if you go back to, I think it's episode... I want to say 25. It's uh, The episode title is A Rocket on a Rocket. You can learn a little bit more uh, about abort systems, uh, launch abort systems, but, and we're going to be doing AA2 coming up here soon. Uh, other than that, on uh, NASA's website and uh, anything Orion, you can find on social media. You can go to the Orion pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On Facebook, it's NASA Orion. Twitter, it's at NASA underscore Orion. And then on Instagram, it's at Explore NASA, actually, is one of the channels that we have that has a little bit of Orion, a little bit of SLS, so you can see a lot of cool stuff there. Uh, you can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit ideas for the podcast. Maybe we'll answer it on one of the episodes, or maybe we'll dedicate an entire episode to it. So this podcast was recorded on February 7th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Greg Wiseman, Tommy Gerzik, Rachel Kraft, Laura Rashan, Brandy Dean, Kelly Humphreys, and Ryan Stewart. And I wanted to uh, give my condolences to Jeff Fox. He was uh, talking about his father, Mike Fox, during this podcast and just wanted to say rest in peace. He passed away very recently. And I wanted to thank Jeff again for coming on the show today. We'll be back next week.